You Albion calling. You Albion calling. Good evening. Or is it? You are listening to the ARC Light Program. Or are you? My name is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb. Or is it? Well, yes, it is. And I welcome you to this Halloween special, the third. <laughs> and now on the light program, I'm expecting a call. Ahoy hoy, Metropolis, six, six, two, Theodore speaking. Good day to you, listener. Are you ready to play the listener's telephone-in quiz? This is Griswold, the grumbling gremlin of grotesque goblin. Oh, right. Uh... Are you any relation to that Lucy Fur we had on the show last year? Indeed. I am his second cousin, twice removed. I thought you sounded familiar. Mm. Now, are you ready to play... I will guess your foolish describing of Ninji Marcus and revenge my second cousin, twice removed. I will claim yourself all eternity. Speak your clue to me. Well, hold on a minute there. We're actually trying out a new game this week. Now, are you ready to play? <laughs> Who's that goat? <laughs> Splendid. Here are the rules. I will play you three recordings of goats. And you'll have to guess what their name is. If you guess all three correctly, then you will win three shillings. Your human money's interest me not. What I desire is your soul for all eternity and beyond. Uh, oh, yes. Sorry, I forgot that was the deal. Right, well, if you guess all three correctly, you can have my soul forever and so forth. How about that? Wait, you want me to guess the name of three goats? That's it. You catch on quick. Right, let's play. <laughs> Who's that goat? Wait, wait, I, I haven't heard. Right, pin your lug holes back. Here's your first goat. This is, this is silly. That, 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 that goat could be caught anything. Well, I didn't say it was easy. Do you want to hear it again? No. Fair enough, but I must trouble you for an answer. Uh, is it Nazi? Oh, nice try. No, that one was the lovely goat Cabbage, owned by Mrs. Trellis of Mornington Crescent. Now... Here's your next goat for two weeks of soul devouring. This is, this is just stupid. Well, that's what I said in the production meeting, but hey-ho. Would you like to hear it again? Here it is. Go on now. Have a stab at a name. Is it Griswold? <laughs> no, silly, that's your name. It is rather, isn't it? I must push you, though. Have a stab, you know, metaphorically. Oh, I don't know. Is it Kevin? Ooh. No. No, no, that one was Colin the Calculator, uh, owned by Reverend Arnold Hoover Biscuits. Lovely man. Lovely goat. Right. Last chance to steal my soul until Tuesday week. Open up your earways. Here it comes. Now, take your time with this one. No more rash guesses. Um, 
where did that guess come from? No, funnily enough, this one is your second cousin twice removed, Lucifer. And he belongs to me. Now be gone before I turn you into a treacle pudding. Well, I think this game's a keeper. And now on the light programme, it's time for Slumbertime Stories. And this week, it's a rather spooky tale. ARC presents All Hallows' Eve at World's End by Niels Visser The World's End was much like any of the many countryside taverns Quentin Rhubarb Tilton had frequented during his five-year career as esteemed and best-selling author. The esteemed, by the way, was Quentin's own estimation of his prowess with pen and paper. The best-selling, on the other hand, was widely recognised because Rhubarb Tilton's work was immensely popular with the reading public, much to the vexation of literary professors across New Albion. Wise as they were, the collective cranial power of all those very learned academics simply couldn't fathom why the public wasn't content to fill their spare time with a copy of... The hidden symbolism of flower-shaped rain clouds reposing in the grey sky over the endless flat nothingness of East Franglia in the poetry of the school of exceedingly uninspirational and uninspired sky-gazing fellows of little talent, and the mystery as to how the sky-gazing fellows made no impact at all on the national literary heritage of New Albion in between the years of 1829 and 1831, as well as all years preceding this main period of activity, not to mention all years thereafter. That kind of book now was one ideally suited for long and passionate debates between various academic factions, which naturally held contrasting viewpoints on causal factors, ranging from the excess of goats in East Franglia to the tragic lack of intellectual curiosity displayed by the dim-witted classes. It was also fertile ground for the conception of lengthy essays on the subject, and no educator worth his salt forgot to include a six-hour lecture on the topic at least once a semester. Outside of these eminent circles, though, the hidden symbolism of flower-shaped rain clouds reposing in the sky, etc., etc., suffered from a distinctive lack of public interest. Quentin hadn't read the tome himself, but suspected the title may have played a modest part in the book's demise. He was proud of the titles of his own works, believing them to be a key factor in his success. The public had an insatiable appetite for rhubarb Tilton works like The Bodice Ripper of Bodkin Moor, Madman's Rampage in the Nunnery, Savage Seductions, Scanty Secrets of the Novice's Dormitory, Jack the Slash's Gruesome Murders in the East Bend, Dainty Damsel Distressed, Delicate squeals at the sight of shirtless Sean, and the beastly beastman of Bristborn. Quentin's personal writing motto was, Quality be damned, let's rip another bodice. Which brings us back to the murky taproom of the world's end in the small town of Alfredston on the white-cliffed coast of Southshire. It wasn't the kind of place where young dandies from the metropolis were likely to be found. In fact, most of Quentin's peers would have been appalled at the very notion of rubbing shoulders with the dim-witted classes, considering it a frightful prospect indeed, one that was bound to offend a gentleman's delicate sense of smell. Quentin wasn't necessarily made of sterner stuff, but he had his own reasons for striding into the busy taproom that was smelly indeed. Apart from the reek of unwashed bodies, stale ale and pipe smoke, his nose was assaulted by the added odour of brine, which seemed to permeate the whole town. Quentin stuck out like a sore thumb, dressed as he was in the latest genteel fashion from the metropolis. A sharp-cut dark blue brocaded suit, matching top hat, impeccably white frilly shirt with lace trimmings, 
and a plethora of shiny cogs and gears that were intended to suggest Quentin was a dashing aviator braving the skies above in splendid airships. It was a sharp contrast to the reeking mass that thronged the taproom. A rustic collection of shepherds, farmers, labourers, and what Quentin assumed to be nautical fellows dressed quaintly in old-fashioned sea-going gear, tricorn hats and all. He frowned when he noted an exception. A long-haired gent sporting a pointed goatee and curled moustache, all coloured fair. The gentleman was dressed in attire much like Quentin's own, but in striking purple and with the added curiosity of a leather contraption in front of one eye. It sported a brass eyepiece with purple lens, the whole complemented by an array of smaller lenses that could be lowered in front of the mechanical eye. Quentin's frown derived from a brief, near-panicked notion that the fellow might be a rival in the business of scribbling Penny dreadfuls. It was soon overcome, though, by the shared genteel genetics that elevated the both of them into the stratosphere, like one of Sir Grenville Lushthorpe's moon rockets in this company of rustic uh, dims. Quentin strode straight for the table occupied by the purplish gentleman, assuming that he would be welcomed by a social equal. Mr. Purple was playing cards with three uncouth rogues. One of them was clad in a long, weather-beaten black leather coat and battered tricorn hat of the same material. His scowling face, with owlish eyebrows and squinted eyes, was reminiscent of foul weather. The second was a wiry man with long, unkempt hair and a harried expression. His gaunt cheeks were covered in stubble, and he was quite coatless, wearing a once-white paint-stained shirt and sleeves rolled up and front unlaced. The third sported a frumious beard, had a mane of wild hair and wore the remnants of something that might have once been a uniform. He appeared to be napping. Finding himself ignored, Quentin uttered a plight, ho-hum, as he hovered by the table, but to no avail. Mr. Purple activated his mechanical eyepiece so that a small lens was lowered in front of his bionic purple eye as he peered at his cards intently. He selected two and threw them face up on the table amidst a collection of pewter tankards, gleaming coins, unlit pipes and open tobacco pouches. I'll play half a goat, he announced, and raise you two groats. Grubby Shirt played two cards of his own and grumbled, I'll play another half, goat, and two arvers makes up a full billy. He threw some coins on the table. I'll see your two groats and raise ye another two. Mr. Purple and Grubby Shirt peered at Foul Scowler, who muttered an oath. By the scally baps of Cthulhu, I'll be damned if I care where all those bloody goats of yours keep coming from. If I didn't ken any better, I'd say they were time to test the sharpness of me axe on your poxed hands, surely. He glowered at his cards, before laying a single one face down on the table, grunting, You'll be pleased to know I'm goatless. Mr. Purple observed, Groatless, too, if you carry on like this. Grumpy Shirt added, And grumpy. Someone got your goat, Silas? Foul Scowler grunted. Ugh, don't ye be goatin' around with me, Captain Spinks. Oh, do go skin a goat, Grubby Shirt retorted, then poked Frumius Beard's belly. Oi, Ned, it be your turn. Frumius Beard struggled to open his eyes and looked around in dazed confusion. Huh? Uh, what's the matter? Uh, did I win yet? He promptly fell asleep again. Mr. Purple relieved him of a random card and placed it face down on the table, before declaring with satisfaction, Ned's goatless again. Grubby Shirt said, Adelaide old goat that he is. Your turn then, Professor von Wintbootle. Quentin stared quizzically at the cards on the table. He had never heard of this 
particular card game that apparently involved a variety of goats. To make matters even odder, the cards that were laying face up on the table all sported a rather grumpy-looking grey tomcat, dressed up in all manner of historical attires. Not a goat in sight. He ho-hummed again, this time successful in attracting the attention of Mr. Purple. Without looking up from his game, the gentleman said with irritation, It's far too late to be joining the game. He retrieved a pocket watch from his waistcoat and glanced at it briefly. Punctuality, sir, is a commendable attribute. Lack of it, a lamentable shortcoming. Justly, foul scowler scowled. That be as certain as a goat's first fire at sunrise. Grubby shirt belched loudly. Frumius Beard let out a startling loud snore. Quentin was quite taken aback. Mostly peeved by Mr. Purple's lack of gratitude in being offered an escape from his present foul company. Perhaps he was mistaken about the man's social class. A true gentleman would surely have jumped at the chance to flee the ill-mannered dims at the table. Grubby Shirt peered at Quentin suspiciously. And who be you? We don't take kindly to strange sheer folk poking their nose about in matters that bain't none of their prevention. Foul Scowler added, "'Tis a most goatish thing to be doing. "'Tis unaccountable, surely.'" Oh. Quentin was pleased to be back on course, as he had anticipated this question and felt well prepared to answer it. "'But I came at the recommendation of an exalted acquaintance of these parts, "'who would be utmost pleased to provide a glowing reference as to my humble appearance, "'were he here to do so?' Grubby Shet asked, "'Quiddy?' Mr. Purple clarified. "'He said he knows someone here.' "'Not quite here,' Quentin said quickly. "'But one who has been here.' Foul Scowler grunted. "'Don't ye tell him where no one's at, nor yet where no one's been.' Mr. Purple said, "'Well, pray, do share with us who recommended you visit the world's end.' Quentin drew back straight. None other than my cousin thrice removed, but almost identical, Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, the famous broadcaster on the ARC and BSBC, well-renowned for classics such as Tales at Almost Bedtime and Can You Guess What It Is That I'm Describing? Never heard of him, Grubby Shirt declared. Unbeknownst to me. Foul Scowler added, and sounds a mite peculiar, surely. The name rings a faint bell, Mr. Purple said, much to Quentin's relief. That radio chap, is he not? Quentin nodded eagerly. World-beating radio, I dare say. Mr. Purple shrugged. I tried tuning in a few times, uh, but I recall his shows are tainted by a dreadful disdain for punctuality, not to mention stammered excuses for technical malfunctions. The marvellous technology of radio transmitting is still in its cradle, Quentin said defensively. My cousin is an intrepid pioneer in the field. At any rate, he advised me to seek out a local named as Hawkeye. Mention of that name brought about a notable change of attitude around the table. Frumius Beard opened his eyes, suddenly awake. I bain't never none heard no owls of none or kai. I swear it, poor McGaffer's gin salt liver, so I does. Foul Scowler frowned at Quentin. Ye be as messed up as Olgan's goat, tis unaccountable. Grubby Shirt regarded Quentin suspiciously through narrowed eyes. Now what would a feller like yourself be wanting from young Orkai? Even Mr. Purple became guarded. Tis most unfortunate, but Orkai isn't currently in our company. Whereabouts quite unknown, 
Not a sensible word to be said about expected arrival, should there be one at all, which is doubtful, or not. Who's to say? Shame about what was undoubtedly a long journey for you. Sensing the dismissal, Quentin replied, It was indeed a long journey from the metropolis, and if no one minds, I shall remain long enough to still my hunger and thirst before I retire to my room. I do apologise for the disruption of your game. The men ignored him studiously, all of them scrutinising their cards once more and muttering about giddy goats come a fair stride away from Southshire. Quentin shrugged and walked away to take a seat at a small empty table in a corner of the taproom, where he ordered a pint of the tavern's best ale. He was far from defeated by the encounter with the card players, having in actual fact achieved what he wanted, namely an excuse to have a vaguely legitimate presence in the taproom. Quentin Rhubarb Tilton hadn't been entirely honest in his introductions. It was true that Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb was his cousin thrice removed, but with both men deficient in the characteristic family traits of the Rhubarbs, there was little resemblance between the two. Certainly not enough to justify the almost identical Quentin liked to boast of. As a matter of fact, the main commonality that both shared was an immense relief that the rhubarb genes had showed little interest in appearing too prominently in the cousin's physiological and psychological makeup. While it was true that Theodore had told his cousin of a visit to Alfredston and had made a wed mention of a Hawkeye, the broadcast had certainly not suggested that Quentin should journey to the place. In actual fact, Theodore would have been appalled had he been appraised of Quentin's intention to visit. Had he known, he would have advised his cousin thrice removed and certainly not identical to avoid Alfred Stone at all costs, using the strongest terms a gentleman could employ within the confines of civil etiquette. Quentin shrugged. Alfred Stone hadn't been his primary destination, but the other villages tucked away in the vales of the Broad Downs had been most disappointing from the perspective of his modus operandi as a writer. The primary reason Quentin travelled around New Albion to frequent these dismal local watering holes was because he had a remarkable shortcoming for one in his profession, namely a limited imagination. It was not something he would ever admit to, of course, not when it was precisely his imagination that received so much monetary recognition from New Albion's reading public, and even begrudging respect from his cousin Theodore. Quentin had found a simple solution for his shortcoming. He would take himself to remote taverns in God-forsaken places, the sort of location highly unlikely to be visited by the reading public. Once there, he made no attempt to hide or disguise his otherness. Weary mistrust was the first reaction. That would usually be followed by discreet glances cast his way, accompanied by muttered insults, just as was now happening in the world's end, as folk made a poor pretension of being disinterested in him. Quentin pretended not to hear their comments, and stopped himself from smiling as the dims played their predictable parts. Puggled beyond a doubt. A might addled, are you reckon? A few breaks short of a middling load, surely. Nan, the sharpest acorn in the treacle mine. Quentin produced a pencil and a leather-bound notebook from his coat to take notes on the local idiom. Knowing that it would add some authentic flavour to whatever story came out of this night. Sooner or later... Curiosity would outweigh the pleasure of disdain, and a few locals would saunter over, smelling an opportunity to pull Quentin's leg and tell a few tall tales to confound the stranger, who would, of course, willingly oblige them by playing the naive outlander. Whatever satisfaction the yokels gained from taking the mickey would be far outweighed by Quentin's pleasure in promptly stealing their stories, adding a ripped bodice or two, and then seeing the yarns published to receive popular acclaim and the chink-chink of financial gain. Quentin just hoped that Alfredston would have more on offer than its neighbours. It was perhaps to be expected in the broad downs where sheep and wool were the economic mainstay. 
Every story Quentin had heard so far involved the divine or supernatural punishment of sheep rustlers. If the natives were to be believed, casting so much as a glance at a sheep or lamb that belonged to another would summon a swift lightning strike, evoke the devil himself, or otherwise result in a grim, grisly, and gory death as a justified retribution for the unnatural perversion of stealing a sheep. Quentin was generally fond of such violent ends, but foul murder of a missing sheep wasn't something he could sell to his readers, most of whom had only ever encountered the creature as mutton on their dinner plates. So far, he hadn't heard a whisper about sheep in Alfredston, but the local seemed suspiciously fond of goats. Quentin was beginning to wonder if he had made matters worse by coming here. The reading market for goatish matters was a tiny niche, limited to a few peculiar gentlemen with unwholesome reputations. He put his worries aside when he noted a plump, blonde tavern wench shyly approach his table. She might well, Quentin decided, serve his secondary purpose in visiting these types of lusheries. The wench was clearly admiring Quentin's display of cogs and gears. Be ye a real aeronaut now, squire? On a proper aero ship and all? Quentin gave her his best smile, one that conveyed that he was a worldly man and patiently indulgent with ignorant yokels, hard-pressed to name the next hamlet down the road from whatever pathetic hovel they called home. He told her, oh, Yes, my dear, I have been known to take to the skies on occasion. It was entirely truthful, though bereft of the further detail it would have revealed his flying experience to consist solely of travelling first class on short intercity passenger flights. Oh! The wench gushed, wide-eyed. I've always wanted to be flying myself. Quentin's eyes gleamed like those of a fox that had found an unlocked chicken coop. It took him some effort not to lick his chops with satisfaction. The wench's interest was as predictable as Dim's distrust of strangers and muttered insults. Quentin had neither the time or patience, or imagination for that matter, for the complicated procedures involved in wooing young ladies of his own social class. Not much was gained there either. The female's in it for the thrill of titillation only. How could a man write knowledgeably about bodice-ripping when the mere brush of a hand was considered the daring apex of physical contact? These countryside lasses, on the other hand, weren't bound by the prudish morals of their social betters. They were free to dance the goat's jig at the top of a hat, and in Quentin's experience, dreadfully bored with the dull and mundane conversations that filled their dreary lives— Local men talking endlessly of the weather, the price of crops, the health of livestock, the state of mud, and... Uh, Quentin glanced over at the card players. Goatish matters. Quentin's appearance offered something fresh and exciting to these poor, bored creatures, separating the sheep from the goat, as it were. He realised that he owed to his readers to gain as much expertise in the art of bodice of ripping as humanly possible. In short, bedding the wenches was a sacrifice he was willing to make for the sake of his profession. Eyeing the wenches' cleavage with the appreciation of a connoisseur, he indicated one of the empty chairs around the table. Do sit down, my dear. Oh! The wench giggled nervously. I don't do that! Nonsense. It would be a pleasure to have such delightful company. I must say I'm highly surprised you haven't already been whisked away by another aviator with a eye for beauty to weave the clouds and soar into the sunset. The wench giggled again, blushing furiously. She looked around, as did Quentin, but the locals had apparently lost their interest in the stranger. Do sit down, Quentin repeated his invitation. This time she took the seat. Oh, well, do, do aeronauts really do that? <laughs> take, take girls away in their aeroships? All the time, 
Quentin assured her. It's very fashionable these days. Truth be told, he didn't have a clue if aviators were so inclined, nor was he intending even for a moment to burden himself with the company of a simple soul like this beyond one night of pleasure. Quentin wanted to remain uncommitted, free to ride the goat when he chose, without all the bothersome nuisance of having to be kind and attentive, listening to endless empty-headed female prattling when there was writing to be done. What Quentin did know was that the merest hint of even a vague possibility that a handsome stranger might just liberate her wench from the daily grind of poverty and mundane retory often had the poor things ripping open their own bodices, saving him the trouble. The only drawback was the awkwardness the next morning, when it dawned on his company that he had no intention to whisk them anywhere, especially when they shed tears, a most inconsiderate female habit on such occasions, and one that quite inconveniently spoiled the preceding enjoyment. Considering himself a nice person rather than a wicked cad, Quentin would usually offer them a few coins as consolation and tell them to buy themselves a nice ribbon at the market. At any rate, this particular wench, to judge by the increased pace of her breathing and resultant rise and fall of her ample bosom, was ripe for the picking. Having established there were no wary, suspicious stares from her father, brothers, uncles or cousins in the taproom, Quentin leaned back on his chair confidently relishing the sweet anticipation of conquest. The wench leaned forward in a conspiratorial manner. "'He be wanting to take care in asking Donna many questions around here, Squire!' "'Really? Why would that be?' "'All along of the gentlemen of the night haven't been known to frequent the world's end somewhen.' "'Gentlemen of the night?' Quentin asked carefully, half suspecting that the winch had caught on to his game. Owlers, she clarified. Free traders! Quentin was puzzled by this nonsense. Could it be possible this simple soul was actually a simpleton? His ardour was cooled somewhat by the possibility. Leaning forward toward him even more, the winch whispered, Smugglers! "'Ah!' Quentin smiled, relieved that things made sense again. "'Yar!' the winch confirmed. "'Foul folk!' Quentin scribbled smugglers in his notebook. He had never treated them before, but some of his penny-dreadful colleagues had written of the blood-thirsty, deranged cutthroats and their wicked ways. Exploring this subject further might well pave the way to a new best-seller. He looked up at the wench, offered her another one of his winning smiles. Sending a possible story, he fully intended to ignore her warning and pursue the topic. I assure you, my dear, that I haven't asked a single question as to these free traders you speak of. Oh, by heard you do so. Ye were asking about Orkai. Quentin regarded her thoughtfully. Cousin Theodore had mentioned the name Hawkeye with clear admiration for what sounded like a keen intelligence and a formidable reputation, but he hadn't linked the name to smuggling. Now why on earth was his cousin mingling with criminals? Quentin quickly scribbled Hawkeye in his notebook, before he said, I didn't realise this Hawkeye was a smart. The wench shook her head in warning. Uh, involved in these uh, nocturnal activities. Oh, by Jiminy! The wench exclaimed anxiously. Quentin couldn't quite place her sudden nervousness until he became aware that another local had approached the table. The person in question was a young girl wearing a battered old top hat as well as long shiny black boots with red laces that ill matched the male fisherman's clothes she wore. She had long chestnut hair and a quirky grin. Who are you? she inquired with a directness that was considerably rude considering her youth and social status, before adding in a curious tone, 
What are you writing? The girl tried to peek at the open notebook, which Quentin hastily shut. She shrugged and said, My name is Liss. Quentin couldn't care less what the girl's name was. There was barely a bosom to be discerned beneath her stout smock, so she was of little interest to him, and quite interrupting his main business of eliciting a story from the blonde wench before proceeding to examine the contents of her bodies at leisure. He looked at the girl with irritation. Just like most of his peers, Quentin considered the offspring of the poor were best off when starved into humble submission. This one was far too confident for his liking. However, it wouldn't do to make an unpleasant impression on his intended conquest, so he had to try and rid himself of this impertinent child as soon as possible without being overly rude. My name is Quentin Rhubarb Tilton, he said pompously, and awaited response in recognition of his fame. He sighed when none came. There was no reason to assume it would ring a bell amidst these ignorant yokels, but it was slightly disappointing nonetheless. He added, I'm a writer, author of some of the most popular Benny Dreadfuls in New Albion. Quentin glanced at the blonde wench to see if she was suitably impressed, but she just stared at him blankly. Liss, however, was triggered into an enthusiastic reaction. You write Penny Dreadfuls? Oh, I, I love reading Penny Dreadfuls. Liss proceeded to demolish Quentin's already unfavourable impression of her by rattling off the titles of Penny Dreadfuls she claimed to have devoured. Each and every one written by Quentin's main rivals, whom he naturally despised to their rotten core. When Liss was done, the blonde wench said... Somewhat surly. Ye said you were an hero, nor... Uh, indeed, Quentin replied quickly. A writing aviator. A flying scribbler. Liss looked puzzled for a moment before asking, What kind of tub do you fly? Do you prefer skirin or skicing? Quentin had no idea what the girl meant by that, so hastily sought to change the subject. He tapped his notebook. I'm researching smart free traders for a new story. Liss grinned. I bain't ken nothing about none owlers hereabouts. Oh, some dever. There'll be plenty of bare most owling tales. Oh, do tell. The blonde went shook her head with a light frown on her brow and said, "'Tis neither the place nor time for such yarns!' Liss ignored the admonition entirely, happy to instruct Quentin. "'And don't know many of them stories being true. Folk made them up!' This intrigued Quentin. He doubted any of the stories he collected were true or hadn't been greatly embellished, but Yokels were always insistent that they believed every word of them. This was the first time Quentin had heard a native dim casually dismiss the legitimacy of local yarns. He asked, mm, Why would they do that? Liz countered with a question of her own. Why do you make stories up? Well, um... Quentin considered the lofty ideals he summed up in civil company to lend his writing a higher purpose of sorts, but decided that in present company such pretense could be dropped. Mm, to make some money. Earn a living. Don't aeronauts earn a most wages? The wench asked. To make a few bob? Liss nodded. That be exactly the reason folk round here some when make up stories. Not all when. Some of the tales be true. Like the moonrakers of Rottingdean. I suppose there might be a market for books with local lore. He rather doubted it, because he was always on the lookout for such books as they'd save him a great deal of travel and discomfort. Liss, however, was shaking her head. It bain't like that. Not proper books like yours. Quentin chuckled. There were plenty of learned professors who would have had an apoplexy at hearing Penny Dreadfuls described as proper books. Liss continued. 
Most when it be tales about shims, torn taverns on cold winter nights. Shims? Quentin asked. Ghosts? The wench said softly. Ghosts? List repeated. Oh, we call them shims. Quentin opened his notebook to write the word shims below smugglers and Hawkeye. So you tell each other ghost tales, he said. But how is that related to earning a living? A fireside tale is generally free of charge, isn't it? Ah, Liss exclaimed. These shim tales are told to keep folk free of certain places. Cellars, a particular copse of trees, a cave, ruins. Oh, hello there. Her last words were addressed to a grumpy grey cat, which had hopped onto the table. Liz started to scratch its chin, invoking loud purrs, but Quentin frowned. He didn't like cats very much to begin with, and he was of the strong opinion they had no business climbing atop tables. The young girl seemed unaware of Quentin's disapproval, continuing to indulge the purring cat and speaking. There'd be an old ruined mansion, and I... Right over the river, across from the church, folks say. No! The winch cried out. It, it bain't right! She clutched at Quentin's hand. S something's uh, known be told when it bain't daylight, squire, uh, and on this night of all nights. Tis all Hallow's Eve, and uh, souls of the dead roam at will. Humbug. Quentin exclaimed. Don't fret, dear, that's just a fairy tale. Quiddy? Liz asked. She looked momentarily confused before shaking her head. It bain't a fairy tale, I tell ye, it were a yarn about shims. Folks say that somewhere on certain nights of the year. The winch rose from her seat and stormed off in a huff and a puff, but the girl paid no notice to her departure. A shim can be seen around Deezer ruins, floating about headless. Folks say she lost her head forever and longer ago, but that her body still be looking for it. Although it was an interesting concept, Quentin wasn't very pleased to have lost the wench. To make matters worse, the grey cat sauntered over the table and brazenly sat down in Quentin's open notebook. Shoo, he told the cat. The creature hissed at him in return, and Quentin, who always felt disarmed without his notebook at his disposal, swept the feline off his notebook with his arm. The cat spat more hisses, but in size was no match for the writer and was forced to depart the tabletop in an undignified manner. Quentin smiled at his plaintive meow from the floor, and then looked back at Liss. So, this headless ghost of yours... He started to say, but his words faded when he saw the horrified expression on her face. You shouldn't have done that, the girl told Quentin sternly. It's just a cat, Quentin said dismissively. Just a cat? That's Gremlin, that is. Grem the Great. Quentin looked sideways to see the cat skulking off to the card player's table. The men there had forgotten about their goats and were staring at Quentin with a mixture of disbelief and dislike on their faces. Quentin recalled the images on their cards. All of a grey cat that bore a remarkable resemblance to the one now leapt onto Grubby Shirt's lap to be consoled. Oh, well. Quentin looked at Liss again, but she'd had enough. You're not very nice, she announced. I'm done talking to you. The girl turned abruptly and strode away, leaving Quentin by himself and very aware of the continued hostile stares from the card players. He decided to cut his losses, got up and departed from the taproom, deciding that a breath of fresh air would do him good. He had the sense to retrieve his greatcoat from his room first. It wasn't particularly cold outside for the time of year, but there was a chill in the air. Light fog was drifting in from over the sea, and there wasn't a soul to be seen out and about in the bright moonlight, 
that spilled over the small town. Everyone seemed to have barred themselves behind closed doors and shutters. Quentin wandered aimlessly around the large church, which had been built on the mound in the middle of an oval common, until his ears discerned the gentle flow of a river. Making his way to the riverbank, he noted the gothic gables that fronted the empty shell of an old mansion across the river. Tendrils of mist wove their way in and out of the great glassless stone latticed windows, and even for Quentin it wasn't difficult to imagine spectral presences. He was startled somewhat when he heard the approach of a light footfall. Such was the presence exuded by these phantasmal ruins, but then cheered by the sight of the blonde wench from the world's end carrying a wool shawl around her shoulders. "'Ye best come back in, squire,' she said, worry in her tone. "'It bain't the best of nights to be out and about.' Quentin shrugged, hoping she wouldn't launch into another anxious explanation as to rustic superstitions around All Hallows' Eve. He replied cheerfully, "'As soon as I can answer some questions that linger in my mind, dear. "'That building now. "'It seems eerie enough without the embellishment of made-up shim tales to frighten people. "'So I go to all the extra effort.' "'I won't tell ye,' the wench said unhappily. "'But it be the three traitors that make up the stories.' "'Understanding lit up Quentin's face.' Uh, there would be intact cellars beneath the ruins. The wench nodded. Yar, that be the truth of it, and it bain't one in folk to go poking about. Splendid. Quentin was quite delighted as he considered the narrative use of such an invention and the subsequent possibility for a tale within a tale. Treasure troves, guarded by imagined sentinels. Do recollect, squire, what Ork I told ye. Some of them tales bain't made of treacle minds. They be true. Orkai? Quentin's eyes widened as he put two and two together. That small scrap of a lass. Yar, squire, Liss Orkai. Famous in Southshire, she is. Old things bain't Alice what they seem. Quentin shook his head finding it hard to connect the order respect of his cousin and the card players with the impertinent girl. His mind didn't linger there long, though, as he had found his story and needed only a few more details before he would take the wench to his room for a bit of rough and tumble. What's the story about the headless ghost? Squire, the wench pleaded, I don't. Tell me. Quentin commanded impatiently. Oh, on your own it be it, the wench said, gazing nervously at the gothic ruins. Don't ye be saying I bain't warned ye. Oh, the shim were a chambermaid at the world's end, forever and longer ago. She became the sweetheart of one of the young men who were part of the free trading gang that worked from the world's end then. Then one dark night... The wench paused, before continuing mournfully. Oh, the Queen's men intercepted a crop running from the sea. There were no owls they could have known about it, so the owlers figured someone must have chaunted. Suspicion fell on the chambermaid. There'd be none but the worst or most punishment for Blobtid, Squire, to make an example, as it were. Owlsomever, she were innocent, and that be the truth of it. Quentin gazed at the ruins, able now to complete the tale and terrifically pleased with the story. So they beheaded her, parted her from her head, and she seeks it still. How absolutely wonderful! He frowned and started to turn to the wench. How do you know she was innocent? Uh... His voice trailed off as he tried to comprehend the meaning of the sudden smell of decay. The wench's clothes threadbare and torn, her lifeless flesh and the puckered mass of scar tissue where her head had once been connected to her neck. A head that was nowhere in sight, 
Yet it seemed the creature could perceive Quentin well enough when she stretched out her swollen, dead arms to him, fingers twitching for his neck. That All Hallows' Eve, in the small town of Alfredston, on the white-cliffed coast of Southshire, no one heard Quentin scream. The end. Or is it? Yes, that is the end. Or at least I think it probably is. Well now, New Albion, we hope you enjoyed this haunted Halloween special. Or do we? Don't go having nightmares now. Although you can if you want. <laughs> this week's harrowing yarn was written by that lustful lapdog of Lucifer. Niels Visser. And performed by the evil incarnate that is... Darren Callow. Original music was composed by the sinuous servant of Satan. Charlotte Savick. Tales of New Albion is a monkey teaspoon production for Albion Radiophonic Corporation. Or is it? Exactly the reason folk round here as blah 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 blah. By the scally baps of glue, not to mention all years there for. Bleh.